We start with the surging COVID numbers in British Columbia. More than a 1,000 new cases in the province again yesterday. Now, lots of concern here, especially with the P1 variant of the virus. Let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Eric Feigel-Ding. He's an American public health scientist, an epidemiologist. He's currently a senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists. And I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Dr. Feigel-Ding, thanks a lot for coming on again. Thanks. Happy to be here. Okay, you've been really ringing the fire alarms here with this uh, P1 variant. Can we talk just briefly about that? And it, it originally broke out in Brazil, and I know you've been following the situation in Brazil, and now we've got a big problem mm. with it here in B.C. Can you give me an update? What's going on in Brazil? Because it's like a disaster there, right? Yeah, Brazil is an absolute war zone. It's, it's what many people call a Fukushima uh, already uh, underway, and we hope it doesn't become a Chernobyl. Basically, Brazil, the entire country, every single state, every single state capital has had their ICUs and hospitals maxed out 90 to 100 percent. And it is just complete disaster. It basically started in Manaus, but then it spread nationwide. And their numbers of deaths are just soaring by the day. And there's an incredible amount of undercount, incredible amount of suffering. It's all is because it, of the P1 variant. Is, is it also because of the government they got down there? I know they got like an anti-vaxxer in charge. Yeah. Yeah, their yeah. president, um, Bolsonaro, is completely, um, you know, mass skeptical, anti-lockdown yeah. whatsoever. Vaccine kind of like, eh, he'll turn you into a crocodile. You never know. <laughs> well, you know, and then he did not order back 100 million vaccines until... ICUs are already at ninety percent. So, and right now they're actually running out of sedative medications for intubation. They're basically intubating patients without sedatives by, oh. you know, holding their arms back. It's incredibly horrible. Oh my God, that sounds awful. Okay, let's talk about this P one variant, uh, Doctor Feigelding, in British Columbia. And is BC? Do we still have this dubious distinction of the biggest outbreak of this virus, uh, virus anywhere in the world outside of Brazil? Yeah, I think um, the largest identified, because I okay. think there's uh, there's other countries like Paraguay, Uruguay, and other Latin American countries also seeing surges, we think is P1, but they don't have enough sequencing. Um, so Florida and Massachusetts also has some P1, but it in Canada, uh, it definitely takes the cake outside of South America. Um, and the P1 there is surging so much. It's out. Here's this. P1 spreads faster than the UK B117, which already spreads 50% faster than the old strain. P1 spreads 100% to 150% faster. And you can see it because in the past few four days, uh, B117 has only gone up about 17%, but P1's gone up like by many, many folds that, like uh, I think 80%. That's just how fast P1 is growing. And, that, and the worrisome thing now is BC has terminated all future uh, sequencing of uh, regular sequencing of cases. And now we're going to be completely in the dark, driving without any headlights, knowing that there is a P1 pandemic going on. Okay, we had Dr. Bonnie Henry the other day mention that, that this, this testing strategy for this particular strain of, of the virus, and they would not do this genome sequencing exclusively for P1. And I guess she wanted to... I guess, you know, with with the limited resources they had, they wanted to use this resource in, in different ways. I mean, it's a bit over the head of, a, I think, a lot of listeners, but c- could you could you explain in, like, layperson's terms what the, the significance of that? Basically, they do not want to regularly test cases that, um, that turn PC, PCR positive for COVID and then sequence further what kind it is. They said, we're just going to do background surveillance, which means they're going to randomly sequence in the background uh, as opposed to sequencing active cases. Most countries obviously don't sequence all. For some countries like Denmark does every single case in the country. But most countries take, for example, uh, 10%, 15 uh, 20%, some places 50% of each week's PCR tests. And that way you know how many there are because what makes a difference is say you do a lockdown say you do a mitigation say you do a school closing a bar closing and the cases start slowing down 
but is it slowing down the old strains that are slower spreading or is it also slowing down your main worried uh, contagious super contagious uh, variant and without sequencing you would never know you'll be flying in the dark you would think that you would have this false sense a blissfully ignorant sense of oh our cases are slowing falling down whenever it's just actually the slower strain that are dying out but the actual fast strain is surging this is why we need to sequence and have comprehensive sequencing for at least 10 15 20 percent of the cases we have Okay, speaking to Dr. Eric Feigelding, Dr. Feigelding, a lot of people here in our province are paying attention to what you're saying. I mean, you're a very prominent, high-profile public scientist. I mean, you got like half a million Twitter followers, and you're featured on CNN and all these big networks, and and you're ringing the alarm about little old us here, right here in BC. Uh, why why are you focused so much on BC? Like, could you explain the threat of this variant here? Yeah. So. I focus on BC because, not because I have any agenda against BC. BC is a lovely place, and I've been there, and I have many friends there. The issue is P1 variant endangers the world. And I've been screaming about uh, Brazil long before I've been screaming about uh, British Columbia. And my interest is in the P1 variant being so contagious and has huge reinfection potential. Basically, people who were previously infected with COVID have actually about 30 to 40% low, uh, greater chance of reinfection than versus other strains. And it has some vaccine evasive properties that is, makes it moderately evasive against the vaccine. We don't know the exact efficacy, but we probably expect probably a 10, 15% drop in the efficacy due to P1 because there's much, much about four to six fold new, lower neutralization in various studies. This is why we cannot let, it's incumbent on British Columbia to keep it contained and keep yeah. and not endanger the rest of North America, the rest of the world with it. This is why I, I'm trying to add pressure because BC is the epicenter. You guys have a surge. It's clear that you guys have it, but it's your responsibility to help the rest of the world contain and prevent Brazil's uh, being repeated throughout the world. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the COVID-19 pandemic in BC. More than a 1,000 cases again yesterday. My guest is Dr. Eric Feigl-Ding, a Federation of American Scientists, calling for tougher measures to defeat the virus in B, especially the P1 variant. Let's take some of your calls here now. Nancy on the line, calling from Armstrong. Hi, Nancy. Hello. Hi. I'd just like to ask if, since the genome sequencing has reduced, if um, the SNP test, that BC is supposed to be doing if that detects the variant. The, the SNF test? Yes, it's, a, it's an acronym for some type of test that's being done. Dr. Bonnie Henry mentioned that in one of her briefings, okay. that they'd moved to a SNP test. Okay, Dr. Feigl-Ding. Um, I think she means uh, SNP uh, as SNP. in single nucleotide SNP. polymorphism uh, genetic okay. test instead of the whole genome. Whole genome basically means sequencing. Sequencing, like, give me your entire genetic sequence to find exactly which variant configuration. A SNP is like kind of like a shortcut test. Um, so, like, some sometimes uh, I think the SNP test can kind of partially identify, but sometimes several variants share the same one. And so it's a shortcut test, and it could give you a clue if maybe the variant but it's not enough to tell you which one. Um, I guess, you know, in a poor man's uh, way, or if you want to get as more, more cases, perhaps it's good. But we need to know precisely if it's P1, because P1 shares several uh, mutations with other variants too. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, if we can def- pin this down as uh, a P1, that's great. But we need to do this on a larger, larger scale. And I think ending the sequencing, uh, I think it's just unfortunate. If your budget is limited, you should cut it down instead of uh, 15, 20%, you should cut it down to 10 or 5%. At least still sample part of the same cases to get to actual genome. Because we really need to know, if this is 2x to 2.5x more contagious. It's just surging so fast, it is replacing the other fast strain. We see it in BC, we see it in Netherlands, 
we see in the UK and all the places where B117 UK fast variant is taking over the country, P1 is taking over and replacing that one. And this is why I'm really worried. And unlike B117 that doesn't have uh, a vaccine uh, evasiveness, P1 does. So it's a double whammy bad. Okay. Let's go to Marguerite phoning from White Rock. Hi. Hello. Uh, This is Marguerite. Hi. Go ahead. Uh, Go ahead. My question is this. Uh, What are the stats on people who have had the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine contracting the new P1 variant? Dr. Feigelding. So that's a very good question. So we don't have precise efficacy. Uh, I want to pinpoint that because P1, for the most part, emerged in Brazil, and Brazil doesn't, uh, for the most part, use much of the mRNA vaccine. But from the virus lab studies, the neutralization studies, you took people's blood from who are fully vaccinated with double vaccinated with Moderna and Pfizer, and then they tested it against a virus in the lab. And they found that for Moderna and Pfizer, it was about four to six-fold lower neutralization, so four to six-x lower. Now, that, that's, not, uh, that's not a good number, but it's not a horrible number. The South Africa variant is about 30 to 40x lower uh, neutralization. That's why the South Africa variant is the most worrisome of all. But South Africa variant doesn't spread this that fast. P1 is like this in-between. It uh, spreads the fastest and has moderate neutralization. So we expect maybe you'll have a couple of points of slower and reduced vaccine efficacy. Um, in contrast, B117 doesn't. So it's like medium bad on the lower neutralization but I think you will still will still likely see at least, you know, 60, 70, 80 percent efficacy. That's what I expect. OK, well, that's reassuring to hear. Let's go to Brian on the line in Richmond. Hey, Brian. Hi. Good morning, guys. A similar sort of question. I was wondering uh, of the relationship between the P1 variant and all the variants, for that matter. And if there's a relationship between those and the fact that there's a four month uh, difference in time between the first vaccine and the second uh, dose. Okay, we got two minutes here, Doctor Feigelding. Yeah, so uh, the time gap between the booster, the second dose, that's only been studied with the AstraZeneca vaccine, and so far it seems okay. That if you gap it out, it actually the efficacy goes up with for the AstraZeneca vaccine. That said, we know the AstraZeneca vaccine is a little bit different on many properties than the mRNA vaccines. But I actually think that um, a, a gapping it out is, is, for the most part, okay. Although we know that in virus neutralization studies that a double do- fully vaccinated two-dose vaccine gives you more pr- coverage and protection right. against P1 and against most other viruses. So okay. two is still better. Okay, we've got precisely one minute here. Let me ask you this, Dr. Feigelding. What do you think British Columbia should be doing here in BC right now? One minute. Well, I think, uh, first of all, um, besides the closure of indoor dining, which I think you have done, I think masks in schools is really critical, and not just for fourth graders and up. I mean all the way down to five-year-olds, kindergarten and up. CDC, that's exactly what they recommend. Uh, BC needs to do that. It needs to ventilate, uh, and it needs to buy HEPA filters for every single classroom. One HEPA filter costs less than $10 per child, and it can protect the most size classrooms, and it's very inexpensive and cost-efficient and will significantly reduce transmission in schools, and I think we should do that right away. Thanks again for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Stay safe, everyone. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about your rights as an employee during the pandemic. Lots of people are working from home these days. Can your boss monitor what you're doing in your own home while you are on the job? What about where you can work? Can you go down to the beach and work down there? Would that be okay under the rules? How about if you get sick and have to take time off from work? What are the sick leave benefits available to you? in bc and here's one that's getting more attention these days what about the vaccine can your boss fire you if you don't get the vaccine lots to talk about on these issues let's discuss now with my guest alia varani is an employment lawyer with sam firu llp and i'm very pleased to welcome her back hi 
Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to have you here again. Thank you very much for coming on. Let's talk about working at home right now. Like a lot of people are working at home. So are you allowed to, let's say, go down to the beach or a park or something and work? Is that cool? That's a very good question. Actually, I've done this myself. Uh, I've gone down to, you know, maybe a different location close to home, something like this, and I've worked from my laptop. That, yeah. generally speaking, is fine. Um, but there are issues when you start to go, say, outside of the province that your employer is based. And the oh. reason for that is, um, you know, you may un- unwittingly have different laws that apply. So, for example, let's say you want to go to Europe or something like this, and you start working out of, uh, you know, a foreign country. You could actually invoke a different jurisdiction. Or what that means is, you know, laws that that otherwise would not apply to your employment relationship would then have effect on, on what you're doing. And your employer does have a right to know about that, especially if they're not registered in that you know area to be able to operate. That's the other concern. So you don't want to go too far away from home, but um, you know something like the beach, if you can work that out, if you can figure a way to do a beach desk, that seems like that should be fine. Well, it's pretty so darn nice out this week. Maybe a lot of people would think that's a great idea. What about, um, can your boss monitor your activities? I was just reading a little bit about this the other day that the technology is advancing so rapidly now that when you're at home working, you might think, oh, this is great. I can chill out and relax. But maybe your boss can somehow monitor what you're doing. They can see the keystrokes you're making on your computer, can tell if you're in front of your laptop, can tell if you're checking your email. Is that true? Yeah, that's a good question. And it has to, you know, there are rules about this. It may come as a surprise to um, British Columbians that this is something an employer is able to do. But the limit is, is that it has to be on their own devices. So if they provide you with like a laptop, for example, they can have software that kind of monitors the work that their employees are doing. Um, in turn, you know, employees can refuse to use the software. Um, and, you know, it would be within the employer's rights to decide to terminate them. Maybe not the best way to manage that disagreement. Um, and then, of course, if they're if they're let go from work for that reason, they would have a right to severance. But it's probably much better to have some sort of discussion where that's worked out, you know, in a mutually agreeable way about what con- the concerns are and what how to find a compromise that works for, for both, um, you know, to meet the goals, which is, I think, just to ensure that work was being done and everything is progressing as it normally would. Do they have to legally disclose to you like let's say you're using a, a company computer or laptop at your home and there's i don't know there's monitoring software loaded on there and they can see what you're doing does your employer legally have to tell you that that software is on there i think it's the best idea for them to do that um yeah. just because there can be so many issues that come up if you know an employee figures out or realizes later it just it can really break down the trust in that relationship and it's probably not the best way to manage a successful working relationship with your employees. Um, uh, so I don't think that that would be advisable. I, it's probably much better for an employer to actually have a policy that sets out that that's what they're going to be doing and like what exactly is going to be monitored so that the employee's imagination is not running wild about, you know, having webcam installed in their, uh, you know, personal um, laptop, that type of thing. Cause there are limits. It has to be, you know, for example, on their own devices that they would provide to the employees. And it's going to be, um, you know, it's going to be something that yeah. is looked at with with limits to privacy. Okay. Can you fake working at home? Somebody told me the other day that you, there are apps out there that will actually make it look like you're at your computer working all day, checking email, working away. <laughs> but maybe you're, you know, you're you're gone out for a jog or something. Uh, and but you've got this app that makes it makes it look like to your boss that you're working. Have you heard of that? I have heard of that. Um, you know, I think what I have to say about that is at the end of the day, if you're not doing the work that you're supposed to be doing um, <laughs> and it's obvious or somebody finds out, there, there's, I don't know if that's really the best way for an employee to go about this. Don't do, don't do that, right? Don't do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just uh, probably not a good idea. At some point, you're gonna, it's going to be obvious that you're not doing the work that you should be doing. Um, I just, I wouldn't, I would, certainly wouldn't make that recommendation. Okay. I think that's really good advice. From uh, from an employment lawyer, don't don't try don't try to fake that you're working when you're not. Speaking to Aliyah Varani, she's an employment lawyer with Sam Furo to Markin. Um, what about sick pay? We hear a lot about this in uh, it's kind of a hot political issue these days about you know what kind of sick pay benefits are available to people out there. What is the status of that in BC right now? That's an amazing question. So COVID has kind of exposed these topics and made people think or turn their minds to what kind of. Pre- 
you know, options we have if we get sick generally. The good news is, is that this is kind of like a province by province decision in BC under our, uh, what's called the Employment Standards Act, which is uh, guidelines about the minimum requirements for employers. Um, there is unlimited COVID sick leave. So we made that change when, when um, there are certain changes that have been made to that legislation to deal with COVID. So if you get COVID, you can have your job protected so that if you have to take some time away and recover for that reason, you don't have any fear of losing your job and you can go back to it. Um, and that's for an unlimited period of time. And then on April 1st, there was an announcement that there's going to be another change so that employees, part-time and full-time employees, if they want to get vaccinated or if they have to help one of their dependents get vaccinated for COVID, then oh, yeah. they can take unlimited period of time off to travel and receive that vaccination and recover if there's side effects, that type of thing, and also have the job protected leave so they can go back to work. Now, with respect to the questions of beverages, is generally about sick leave and taking time from work. There is just the three days of paid sick leave for illness um, not related to COVID. And so I think that a lot of people or groups are considering, well, what type of reforms do we have? Because if somebody believes that they're sick and they don't necessarily know if it's COVID, do you want them to think that it's under the three days? You, you know, it's, it's potentially an opportunity to look at some of our rules about uh, paid sick leave in general. Right. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of vaccines, here's another headline I saw this morning. Can your boss fire you if you don't get the vaccine? That is a very popular topic that I am being asked now as the vaccine becomes more available. And I think employment lawyers in general. Um, So I wouldn't say that it's like a mandatory vaccine, but there is going to be a balancing between the obligations of the employer and the rights of the employee. So, for example... There are limited circumstances where employees would not be required to take um, a vaccination, and that's if they fall under, you know, if they can show that there's a reason under, um, they can't uh, can't be against their rights under one of the protected grounds under the Human Rights Code. Um, correspondingly, employers have an obligation to provide a health and safe work, a healthy and safe workplace, and they have to follow, say, you know, work safe BC laws about how that has to happen and provincial rules, if there's a public health order, for example, about social distancing, you know, there's been so many changes recently. Every time there is a change, they have to ensure that they're compliant. And so if, um, you know, if they decide to make a rule about vaccinations and an employee decides that they don't want to do that, then, um, uh, then it, you know, it has to be something that um, allows the employer to operate safely, but at the same time doesn't... Um, prevent the employee from, say, if they have religious reasons. I know certain certain um, groups don't allow, um, you know, things like that to be done. Then, then what if, what if you're just, what if you're just like a run-of-the-mill anti-vaxxer and you believe some crackpot conspiracy theory, like, you know, Bill Gates wants to in- inject me with a listening device or something, or, you know, can yeah, you say, like, what happens hard. then? Well, so what happens is that, you know, an employer for the most part, they can impose whatever working conditions that they want to in their workplace, um, just subject to those human, to those human rights concerns. And if an employee doesn't want to do that, then, you know, um, they could face, you know, they could face termination, but then they have to be provided their fair severance. So as long as it's not under one of those protected grounds, I mean, your employer can run their, their workplace the way that they need to in order to ensure that it is, um, healthy and safe and meeting the requirements of, uh, you know, under work safe and occupational health standards. Right. Okay. What if you catch COVID at work? Can you get workers comp? Oh, well, so the, the majority of my work is um, not necessarily dealing with uh, workers compensation, but yeah. um, if that, you know, you, you may be able to, to uh, make a claim there as well if it's not already covered under the Employment Standards Act as one of those, you know, COVID-protected leaves. I don't know if that would, um, you know, you can certainly, there's nothing that prevents an employee from making that type of claim and yeah. going through that process, and then they'll make a determination if it's covered or not. Some, some people, there have been lots of claims for this under uh, WorkSafe in British Columbia, and, and uh, a lot of them have been successful, but I believe ma- a lot of them, a majority of them have been uh, denied because, it, you know, it, the challenge is proving that you actually caught it at work, which can, exactly. be, can be challenging. 
All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about your rights as an employee during the pandemic. If you got questions about sick pay, government assistance during COVID, your rights as an employee, especially if you're working from home, phone lines open right now. My guest is Aliyah Varani, 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to your calls. Linda in Maple Ridge. Hi, Linda. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, my daughter was exposed to a COVID-positive um, person and had to self-isolate. And um, she is working for, or was working for a hair salon in Langley, who <laughs> uh, kind of questionable uh, employment um, program there. And um, they fired her. Um, she's still, because she had to self-isolate, She's still within her probationary period. Um, does she have any repercussion? Or um, is how was she? Can... How was she exposed? Was she exposed to COVID at work or somewhere else? No, out of work. Out of work. So, mm-hmm. so she was told because she was exposed. She was she advised? Was she told by a doctor to quarantine well, or eight one one? And and she did the testing and she tested oh. negative, but yeah. she still had to self isolate for two weeks. For two weeks, and they fired her for that. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. I know. Come on. Okay. Uh, Aaliyah, what do you think? Yeah, that's. I was going to say, I just can't believe that. I'm so sorry, Linda. Uh, that's, you know, if, let's just say it wasn't COVID. If somebody's terminated by reason of there being an illness or an injury that they've suffered, um, certainly in your daughter's circumstance, she's required to do this um, quarantine period. It's not really her choice. That um, there's, there's two issues here. One is whether they've thought the employers met their obligation to fulfill the, uh, the probationary period properly and there are requirements that employers have to follow to do that they have to say um you know give that employee a fair and fighting chance to to meet the requirements in the probationary period and so um, just because she's on probation doesn't mean that they have any less of an obligation to her as an employee and in fact if they you know terminate her for the reason that she's ill for any illness then that raises concerns about whether she's been you know there's been discrimination under one of the protected grounds under the human rights code which includes injury um, illness and disability. And so um, even if it's, if it's, you know, she doesn't have that, um, she doesn't have COVID, um, it's for the perception of that disability that's still covered under the Human Rights Code. And so she, you know, she, if she decides to, she could have the right to bring, you know, a legal claim against her employer for doing this because that reason for dismissal is not appropriate. Um, and just generally speaking, I think a lot of people are surprised to learn that there are um, obligations that an employer has to follow when they when they decide to have a, a probationary period. It's not right. just like you can be let go on a whim. They have to give you a fair chance, and uh, doing it for this type of reason is 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 far below that fair chance yeah. that would be provided. Yeah, Linda, are you still there? Okay, she, she, I was going to ask if she, if her oh Linda yeah yeah, I'm here. yeah did she get any severance pay when she was fired? No. Oh man, just just fired just like that. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Aliyah, what so what do you recommend that she does here? Do you think? Yeah. Well, I think that it would be helpful to. You always want to look to see if um, that's the question about the probationary period. Is I think a lot of people or employers think that because it's a probationary period, they don't have any obligation to provide severance, and that's why there are still those considerations that the employer has to keep in mind to ensure that they're doing that fairly. It would be helpful if you know if your daughter is considering kind of reviewing her legal options. She'd want to collect her employment documents and then you know, she can choose to speak to whoever she likes and they'll have a better idea of how to set out that process um, of uh, what she can do and how she can do that and, and that type of thing. But it's certainly important to kind of collect all of the correspondence she may have had with her employer about this, um, any termination letter that she's been provided. That's kind of the first step that she would uh, want to take yeah. right now in the situation. Okay, Linda, thank you for the call, and good luck to you and your daughter there in uh, getting some justice. That doesn't that doesn't seem fair to me, for sure. Aliyah, we just got a, a minute left here. The CERB program, is that's been wound down in Canada. There's no more CERB in Canada, correct? Yeah, so they've kind of transitioned. CERB ended around uh, September 27th, and then everybody that had been on CERB was, was switched back to the new... They had made some changes to the EI program. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the current state of that. Uh, but there's other benefits that, um, you know, Canadians can apply to. That's like a federal benefit. There's the Canada Recovery Benefit, for example. Um, uh, if they're not entitled to, say, EI benefits, then that is something that they can, uh, that they can certainly apply for based on those eligibility rules.
Okay, Aaliyah, thank you for coming on the show today. I appreciate it a lot. Oh, thank you for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about school budgets under pressure in British Columbia now, including in the Victoria School District, where the local school board faces a $7 million deficit. The school looking at budget cuts to make up the shortfall. A draft budget in Victoria includes cuts to school music programs. Students involved in school music programs not happy about that, including the kids at Lansdowne Middle School, where students there held a protest outside the school this week, including my next guest, Grace Bateman. She is in grade six at Lansdowne Middle School. She's 11 years old. She uh, led this protest, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Grace, thank you for coming on today. You're very welcome. Hi. Hi to you. This is I think this is awesome that you're speaking out as as a as a young person involved in the music program. Tell me about your uh the music the music program at Lansdowne. What instrument do you play there? Um I play in strings, I play the cello and in band I play the saxophone. Wow, that's really cool. Okay, tell me about the uh, the protest uh, that you guys had there. Um we uh on Monday morning at 8 me and a bunch of the other music students, we all planned it together, and we went outside and we made signs, and we did a little concert for the cars driving by on Richmond Road. <laughs> okay, that's great. I know this school very well, and they have a wonderful music program there. Why, why is this uh, the program important to you, and what do you think about this idea to cut it? Um, I think that music is very good, because with all the COVID stresses and the normal school stresses, it's it's really good. It calms people, yeah. and I think I think that they I don't think they should cut it. I think they should keep it because everyone loves it. Even if they aren't in it, they want their friends to still be in it. Sure. Okay. So when you guys were outside there playing your instruments, uh, what what kind of reaction did you get from people going by? We had cars driving by honking and waving, um, and we had lots of people come by, and um, we. We had extra signs, so we gave them out, and we had a bunch of people there, and it was really great. Okay, well, good for you. What about your teachers? You know, I bet you they were pretty supportive of you, too, I bet, huh? Yeah, we planned this in one day, so I emailed wow. them on Sunday night, just telling them that we were going to do something the next morning, and then they just showed up and helped us a little bit with getting everything set up. Right, okay. What's the message you want to get out here, Grace, to the, the school district? You want them to, to not do these cuts, right? Yeah, I, I feel like people should send word to the government and our school board that music is an important part, an important part of school. Yeah. And I don't know why they are doing this because it's just a short-term COVID problem, and they don't need to make long-term cuts. Yeah, well, well said. Uh, do you think that maybe sometimes? Like, I've seen this before. I've seen school districts threaten to cut music before, and I, I agree with you. I think music is super important for kids. Do you think maybe they, they pick on the school programs? Maybe it's like a, maybe they think it's like, a, well, it's just music. We can cut that. I think that because music is not one of the more um, core subjects, like right. math or social studies, they think that it's okay to just cut that because it's not as... I guess, important, they think. Yeah, right. I agree. I think that's what maybe there's going through their minds. But you say it is important to you, right? And, and I'm sure to your, your fellow students involved in music. I think it's very important. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, Grace, is there anything else you'd like to say? Uh, I just want to say that it was a huge group effort by all my classmates. And I just want to thank everybody for supporting us. Okay, Grace, good for you. I'm very impressed with you as a, as a grade 6 student and just 11 years old speaking up like that. And thank you very much for being a guest on my show today. Thank you for the chance to talk about this, Mike. Yeah, you're welcome. That is Grace Bateman there. She is in grade 6 at Lansdowne Middle School. She was part of the protest this week over the planned budget cuts to the music program. As you heard her say there, she plays cello and saxophone at Lansdowne Middle School. And I'll tell you what, I think she just set the record there as our youngest guest that we've had, just 11 years old. And I am super impressed with that. Okay, we got Patty, uh, Patty Backus also on the line, education columnist at the Georgia Strait, former chair of the Vancouver School Board. Hi, Patty. 
Hi, Mike. How much I know. I know you follow that guest. Yeah, I know. I like. I know you were listening to that. I'm super impressed with this this kid. What did you think? Oh, she's incredible. I mean, so yeah. articulate, and her points are just bang on, and certainly echo what I heard year over year when I was a Vancouver school trustee, and uh, our music programs were on the chopping block. It's uh, she did a great job, and um, yeah. Uh, yeah, great for her. And I hope uh, I hope those who have the power to stop this are listening <clears throat> to students like Grace. Yeah, and I, and I think it was a very effective protest that they did too, taking their instruments outside, giving a little concert outside, and and getting the support of people driving by and walking by, and their teachers pitching in, and and she was one of the leaders on that protest. So I certainly congratulate her. Are you hearing about? Any other budget crunches like this in other school districts? I mean, this is happening in Victoria. Is it happening elsewhere? Yes, I. Uh, I'm just. Uh, I'll have a column coming out this afternoon in the Georgia Strait about this. I have never seen some of the numbers I'm seeing this year, and I've been watching, as you know, the uh, uh, BC public school budgets for a couple of decades now. Uh, you know, we see Surrey, which is the largest school district, is facing an absolutely staggering $43 million shortfall. Uh, that wow. is a historic record for any any school district. Um, and, and, you know, Richmond, it's over $7 million. Burnaby, I think, is over $10 million. Uh, Vancouver has a fairly steep price. I think they started out with about a $15 million gap. They do have some surpluses from previous years to offset that, but this is playing out in many school districts, uh, and it's kind of a perfect storm of a number of factors that have left them with these gaps. And, and when we talk about it, it's not really a true deficit. It's a shortfall. If they want to carry on services next year at the same level as this year, uh, yeah. they don't have enough money to do that because inflationary costs and some of the COVID costs and also a, a loss of revenue from international students and building rentals oh. during the pandemic. So it's all coming together to create these staggering holes in their budgets. And it's an odd year as well because we haven't had the provincial budget tabled yet. So there's you know, still some hope. My hope is that next week on April 20th when the provincial budget's tabled, there will be some funding relief because this is just appalling to me that school districts, after all they've been through this year, are now expected to go in and look at cutting the kinds of programs uh, that we've heard are so critically important and essential for students' well-being. Okay, do you find that, I, I get deja vu in a story like this, because it seems like we've, we've been around this mulberry bush before here about music programs in particular uh, being on the chopping block. Why does it always seem that, I don't know, is, is music kind of the low-hanging fruit, like the easiest thing to cut? As, as you heard this, uh, Grace Bateman just described, you know, she thinks that, well, maybe some of these administrators think that music's not important or it's not a core subject, and that should be the first thing to be cut. But your thoughts? The sad point we've reached in the BC public education system is that we look at budgets according to how little we can fund things based on collective agreement uh, restraints. It, that becomes the guide, which is a terrible way to budget schools. It's not looking at what do kids need. It's how low can we go. We have to meet certain requirements in terms of class sizes, uh, certain ratios in some districts for things like counselors and uh, special education. But outside of that, there's no contractual obligation to provide what in some districts, for example, the music programs or are not necessarily the curricular ones. They're added as um, sort of an extra on top of that required staffing just because they're not in the teacher's contract. So districts look at, well, what can we cut without running into contractual issues? And instead of thinking about how critically important things like music are for kids, you know, you're talking to someone who got fired for refusing to approve a cut to music programs in Vancouver. After I was fired, uh, the appointed trustee went in and cut the elementary band and strings program and it's never come back. So this fight is really important to me as well. And I'm glad to see people pushing back, but I hope they're successful. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about budget crunches at BC School Districts. Uh, my guest, Patty Backus. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Peter and Burnaby. Hey, Peter. Well, pigs must be flying because this is the first time I could think we're Patty Backus and I agree on something. Uh, <laughs> I, I have to tell you, as a former administrator, yeah, good. As a former administrator and music teacher for decades, we cannot diminish the positive impact 
of offering music in our schools to children, along with physical education, along with art, math, uh, reading and writing. The, the reality is that we, we need to stop this mindset that we can just cut something away because it's extra. It's not. It's part of a whole child's education. Okay, Peter, thank you for the call. Okay, Patty, you got a new supporter there. Um, what about other school districts? Are any other school districts considering cuts right now to music programs, or is it just Victoria at the moment? Well, most haven't come out with their specific proposals. Yeah. Um, they're in their, what they call their consultation stage. They're doing, this week, there were several budget meetings in districts around the province where they kind of laid out their scenario and their shortfalls and uh, their process for, they don't have to actually submit their budgets till the end of June to the province okay. and they have to be balanced. Um, so most are a little earlier. Victoria is one of the first out of the gate in terms of specific proposals. In fact, their superintendent, I think, kind of jumped the gun going directly out to schools with a letter telling them that, you know, they had to tighten their belts and they were well, going to have choices. Well, I wonder, if, I wonder if that's a deliberate tactic to put some pressure on the government to put more money on the table in the budget next week. Like if he comes out with a threat saying, hey, guys, we might have to cut the music program here. I mean, that puts pressure on the politicians, right? Right. Possibly, possibly. I hope, yeah. you know, it could be. I'd like to see certainly more of the School Trustees Association being very clear to government that, you know, they were told this year that schools were absolutely critical, had to stay open, uh, that the supports that kids get in schools are absolutely critical to their well-being. And now yeah. those very supports are, are on the chopping block. That just, That's a slap in the face to me to school districts well, that have worked very hard to to accommodate kids in a very probably the most difficult year there's ever been in our school Well, I, I also thought that our 11-year-old guest, Grace, Grace Bateman, made a great point on that, that music is, is great for uh, kids and, you know, their mental health here during this pandemic. Let's go to Edwin on the line in Kelowna. Hi, Edwin. Good morning. Hi, uh, Just a quick statement. There is no life without music, mm. no matter where it comes from. But I've had two, uh, two kids in school. I went through school in music. And music, something when you're taking it in like junior high or wherever, it does something to your brain. It speeds up the processing in your brain that you have to work with all these other kids and read music. And you're, you're more advanced in life by taking music and reading music. Yeah, a good point. I had both both my boys went through music programs, including at that land, the same school where uh, Grace went, Lansdowne. And they do a great job there. Keith in Port Moody. Hi, Keith. Hey, Mike. Hey, Patty. Now, I would echo everything that everybody has been saying so far. The fact that music and arts would even be considered to be cut is tragic, given the benefit that music does in particular. It reinforces um, learning in subjects like math. It ha it's a social endeavor. It's something that makes everybody happy. Um, and in this particular circumstance, it just doesn't make any sense when we're spending all this money on COVID relief that we would cut the things that we are passionate about. Right. No, good point. Thank you, Keith. Brendan on the line in Vancouver. Hi. Hi. Uh, yeah, I, I agree pretty much with what everybody's saying, but, you know, we are in trying times and we kind of got to find a happy medium. You know, I grew up, uh, I, my family wasn't very supportive musically and what I wanted to do, so I, ju I got a lot of it from high school. And it was very important for my mental health. Once I decided I wanted to do music, there was no stopping me. And uh, all, all children that have a passion for music should have that opportunity. But I understand we got to find a happy medium because this is a pandemic. And, you know, I think if we made uh, smaller classes and uh, maybe made... Uh, more more often classes and uh okay, okay I, I believe children should have the right to uh, explore their musical endeavors thank thank you brendan music programs getting a lot of love here on the open line for sure wendy on the line in surrey hi wendy hi how are you mike i'm good i am a grandmother and a mother and i was raising my husband and i and i was unable to work due to illness and if it wasn't for my kids getting music and sports and stuff like that from school, 
Yep. They w- they only well they would have got it at home because both my husband and I believe, at the time believed that music is really important, mm-hmm. and I think that when they take band or music or art, that they're getting a break from their studies, and you need half to to level out the brain. You need to have your music and your art and your PE so that you can get your stress out from your class studies. Thank you, Wendy, for the call. Let's squeeze in one more. Avona, Avona in White Rock, but you got to go quick. you got 30 seconds. Okay. I can't believe you don't decide to move or to I'm doing that, that what the I would be. Okay, Avona, you're, you're breaking up bad, but I think I got your point that you're, you're opposed to the cuts. We're going to continue to follow this one very closely. Patty, thank you for coming on today. Always a pleasure, Mike. Take care. Okay. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the battle over fur farming in British Columbia now, particularly BC mink farms under fire. Now, this is a bigger industry than a lot of people might imagine in British Columbia, where mink are raised on farms for their fur. In recent years, more than 250,000 mink were raised and killed for their fur in British Columbia in a single year. Now, growing pressure to shut this industry down, especially after a COVID-19 outbreak at a couple of mink farms in British Columbia that happened last December. The latest group calling for mink farms in BC to be shut down, the BC uh, Co- the Union of BC Indian Chiefs this week uh, saying that this industry should be phased out in British Columbia. All right, let's discuss it. Now I got both sides of it here. I'm going to start first with Rebecca Bretter. She's an animal rights lawyer at Bretter Law. I'm going to have someone from the fur farming industry on here in just a moment. But first, I'm pleased to uh, welcome Rebecca back to the show. Rebecca, thanks a lot for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Thanks oh. for calling me. You bet. Do you think this industry is bigger than most British Columbians realize? Yeah, I don't think people realize that there are about 13 mink farms in British Columbia, the vast majority of which are in the Fraser Valley. And like you said in your opening, there are thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of the mink that are killed annually. And what people don't realize, or maybe they don't think about it. I mean, can I give you my three main reasons why I think sure. this has to be shut down? Yeah. And first of all, from, from my perspective, and I know that I'm certainly not the only one who feels like this, from an ethical and moral perspective, there are, like I said, thousands of mink that are kept in small, cramped wire cages. They're not running around on a farm freely. So that romantic idea just doesn't exist at all. They're kept in small wire cages, cramped. Their little feet never touch grass or anything natural that they naturally would. They suffer tremendously. They are, do you know how they're killed? They're killed Uh, by being, they're, they're killed usually by being gassed to death. I mean, nothing about this industry is humane or necessary it is absolutely cruel and inhumane okay well the industry the industry would absolutely push back on that and they'll say that well actually this is an industry that is closely regulated and monitored and that mink farms in british columbia must be licensed annually and inspected by the ministry of agriculture and veterinarians have to go in there and take a look at take a look at these animals and that it's not cruel and that they're well taken care of because if they're mistreated or they're not they're not you know, raised properly, you get poor quality fur as a result. So, well, if if they think that keeping uh, sentient beings that are naturally wild in small wired cages without giving them any kind of natural way to exhibit their their natural lives is ethical and fine, well, then I think we have a totally different perspective. Well, would you like? Would you? you but you know what? More importantly, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but. Yeah. Over 80% of Canadians are, again, like, forget about what I say, but over 80% of Canadians are just fundamentally opposed to killing animals for fur nowadays. So that's one of the reasons. From an ethical point of view, there's no ethical argument there. It's just, it's cruel and inhumane. But from a Well, there's an, it's ethic, it may be unethical to you, though, right? But, I mean, not to everybody. Well, to over 80% of Canadians who agree with me, yeah, the vast majority. I mean, who wears fur nowadays? It's the elderly grandmothers who wear fur now. 
it, it just it's gross it's not even in style anymore it, people it, know sus- what's really behind this cruel industry is it sustainable is it a sustainable i guess fabric if you will as compared to say nylon or or other or other synthetic synthetic fabrics made with fossil fuel no no i, I mean the bottom not? line is the bottom line is that the way that these animals are treated and kept their entire lives is not sustainable in in any way. And and I know what you're getting at is well, is fur more quote unquote natural yeah, than yeah. than than let's say like synthetics. Well, then right. let's jump to the other reason, which is health wise, a health reason to not have these anymore. It's just look at what happened in Denmark, and I mean, never mind Denmark. I mean, they're in their own backyard where mink have tested positive for COVID. We had eight workers tested positive for COVID back in the late fall, early winter, and 200 minks have died. You know, there is a direct correlation, Keeping, put it this way, keeping thousands of animals in close quarters like this is yeah. ground zero for another pandemic. If there's yeah. one thing that we've learned, hopefully, from COVID, is that we cannot be keeping animals like this especially for ridiculous reasons so that we could supposedly wear fur, which is, I mean, dying industry anyway. Well, it can't be, it can't be dying if you've got a thriving industry that's supporting it. Well, I, I certainly wouldn't say it's thriving. I mean, how many mink fur coats do you see out there nowadays? Well, I really? mean, you just said yourself it's a bigger industry than people think in BC. I mean, it's, it's, it's bigger for a reason, right? Because there's a market for it. Well, it's bigger in the sense that I don't think people realize that we have mink farming here in BC, but is it profitable? Is it actually mm. viable in the future? No, in the long term, absolutely not. Well, so it I just mean, makes no sense. Well, I mean, the market will make, will make that decision. At, at, but, but at the end of the day, Rebecca, let me ask you this. Like, are, are there any circumstances under which you think this industry could operate? Like, could it... Could you bring in stricter regulations? Could you bring in, I don't know, bigger cages or, or allow these animals to go outside or something? I mean, no. I mean you, you wouldn't tolerate it under any circumstances, right? That, that, that's right. Yeah. I mean, the, the bottom line is no, there wouldn't. And, and put it this way, put it in a global context. I think BC is going backwards right now. By BC recently announced the resumption of mink breeding in, on BC mink farms, yeah. including on one farm that's still under quarantine. But if you follow what's going on in the world, places like France, UK, Ireland, I mean, the list goes on. Smart countries with good leadership who understand not only that it's morally wrong, but if you just look at what the public wants and doesn't want and you look at it from a health perspective, those countries are phasing out and are working towards an eventual ban but on if you, mink farming and other fur farming. But if you were to shut it down in British Columbia and in Canada, where the industry is government-regulated and subject to inspection by veterinarians, would that necessarily, you might just drive it underground or, or drive it into other countries where there is less, less scrutiny and regulation? I don't like China or somewhere, and maybe that would be even worse for the minks. I think you could always make an argument like that, but what do we want in our own province, in our own country? I think we want something that's right and something that that's progressive. And the whole idea about how, and I know the mink farming industry is going to say, oh, we are heavily regulated, we have inspections. If yeah. they are so confident about how their industry is operating ethically and properly and that the animals are happy, why not let the public see what actually goes on? Mm. Why not post pictures how these animals are actually kept every single day of their lives okay. and let the public see for themselves? The only reason why we know is yeah. because there are very dedicated, risk-taking animal advocates who manage to make their way onto these farms and take pictures of these horrendous um, ways that these animals are kept. Okay, Rebecca, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. To the show. Well, you heard the take against mink farming from Rebecca Bretter. Let's get the other side of it now. My guest is Alan Herskovici. He is a researcher with truthaboutfur.com, former executive vice president of the Fur Council of Canada. Pleased to welcome you to the show, Alan. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. Okay, I know you heard that interview there. What do you want to say about it? Well, it's, it's, you know, it's upsetting for farmers to hear such unfair and just often plain false uh, 
information spread. And, uh, you know, what you've got is animal rights groups that have long been against fur. And in fact, the same groups are now against any animal agriculture. And of course, many of the same arguments they're making, would they do make against all forms of animal agriculture, you know, uh, raising animals for food or any other purpose. Yeah. But you know, what, what I guess the, the, the mink farmers would like people to understand in British Columbia is that, first of all, as you mentioned in the interview, like um, it's a well-regulated industry. The fur farms are, are licensed by the Department of Agriculture. They are inspected annually to be sure that they're, you know, following the codes of practice, which ensure each humane practices, uh, good nutrition, good care. And, and again, as you mentioned, if you don't provide good care to these animals, if the farmers don't take good care of the animals, they simply can't produce the kind of quality of fur that you need to survive in the market. And we all know that. I mean, we know our dog or our cat, if you don't take good care, if it doesn't receive good care, you see it right away in the fur. So if it was for only that reason, you know, aside from the fact, of course, that farmers, you know, care about what they do and try to, to take care of their animals just, just because that's what they do. Um, so that's one point. But another point that's being raised is, is um, well, it's so clear when these people speak, they've never been on, on a mink farm in BC or Canada in any case, or they wouldn't be saying these things. But um, the positive role of mink farming, um, you know, first of all, mink are carnivores, and they're fed the leftovers from other animal agriculture, the parts of pigs and chickens and fish that we don't eat. Uh, often 50% uh, of the biomass that we don't eat and would otherwise often end up in landfills. So you're recycling what would be waste from in other parts of the, of the agriculture into a productive, you know, way. And, and oh. y- you're making a, a, a material fur. Not everybody, nobody is forced to wear fur in this country. We're all free to make our own decisions. But, you know, fur at a time when we're, we're talking about the environment and being more sustainable, fur just makes a lot of sense. Uh, f- we see mink coats, you know, every day that are 30, 40 years old. And, and they're still in good condition. You know, the environmentalists are telling, we know now that the fashion industry, our, our clothing industry, fast fashion, uh, is becoming a serious problem. Like, you know, oh. clothing doesn't cost that much. A lot of the synthetics that are, by the way, made 80% or more from petroleum. And sure. uh, they're not biodegradable. And they're often not too expensive okay. to buy, but we don't wear them long. And whereas fur is a long-lasting material, that okay. in itself makes environmental sense. Okay, let's squeeze in a couple of phone calls here and speak to Kaylee on the line in Aldergrove. Hi. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me on. Sure. Go ahead. Um, so I myself, I'm a registered nurse, and I am the wife of a mink farmer. Um, I've been with my husband for about 13 years now, and I've, I've learned a lot over the years about the industry of mink farming. And I'd just like to, to share my thoughts that I feel everyone is entitled to their own opinion about this, as I do understand it's a controversial industry. However, I feel the opinions should be formed fairly. And what I mean by that is I do find a lot of people form their opinions based on what they see on social media or perhaps what an animal rights activist chooses to collect for imagery on a farm themselves and then shares it on social media. What I'd like to ask is who is actually stepping onto a farm to have a constructive and fair conversation with a mink farmer. And I'd also just like to point out that these farmers, they're, they're very hardworking people. They're human beings just like you and I. They're not monsters. They have families just like you and I, and they show up to work in the morning just like you and I, seeking to do a good job, seeking to look after the animals that they care for in order to produce a product that they're proud of at the end okay. of the day. Okay, Kaylee, thank you very much for that. Alan, our, uh, Rebecca Bretter said that the industry is cruel and inhumane. How, how would you respond to that? Like, how are the animals treated? Well, I mean, it's, it's just totally false what she said. And, uh, you know, like I said, it's clear she'd never been on a mink farm in BC or she wouldn't say that. Uh, well, would you, would like you let said, her go on one of the farms and look around? Now, here's the sad part of it. Uh, mink farmers would love to have people come on and see the work. Of course, now during COVID, we can't do that because we're maintaining biosecurity. And as we have heard, mink can catch uh, COVID from people. That, that cases that happened in BC with, with two farms was caught from the workers. Um, so obviously you can't do it now, but generally people would want, you know, would want to show what they do. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, when you get animal activists that are trying to, you know, discredit farms and attack farms and sometimes have even released animals from farms, then they're forced to, to maintain more security than they would want to. And that's, 
That's the sad part. Some of the activists who are complaining we don't see what's happening on a farm, it's unfortunately thanks to some people who go too far and actually break into okay. farms that the okay. farmers are obliged to be a little more close than they would want to be. Let's squeeze in another call here. Philip on the line in Marpole. Go ahead, Philip. Yes, I have a question. Uh, sure. Compared to North America and Western Europe, what is the per capita demand in large markets like mainland China and Russia, et cetera? For fur? Yeah. For yeah, me. yeah. Okay, we got a minute left here, Alan. Go ahead. Well, I mean, yes, there, there, it's true that in China there's a, there's a growing market because people are wealthier there, and we forget the north of China is cold like Canada is, and so there is a lot of demand there for, for, for fur, and most of our mink that we produce in Canada, a large part of it, is exported. It is an export industry. But there's also still demand in Canada and in Europe, and, and let's remember when, when the, the animal activist she was saying there's nobody wants fur anymore. Look at Canada goose. Look at all the young people yeah, wearing. Yeah. Now, not in Vancouver, of course. You don't really have the climate for it. But, you know, I'm speaking in Quebec and, and in other parts of Canada. There's lots of fur. We see it in the winter, you know, still. But so there's a market in Canada and in the United States and in Europe. But you're right. There's a growing market in, in parts of Asia, too, where people can now afford fur okay. in colder parts like northern China. Okay, Alan, thank you for coming on. I'm glad we were able to get both sides of it today. And we have lots more callers, but sadly just out of time. So we'll just have to have you back and uh, and do it again. But thank any, you for your time any today. Time. And, and by the way, when people do want to know Truth About Fur, as you mentioned, we founded this website to give people the chance to see, okay. you know, answer questions about fur anytime. Truthaboutfur.com. Thank you, Alan Herskovici.